Well, good morning and welcome again. My name is Tyler. So glad that you're joining us or if you're joining us online. Before I begin, I invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, drown this place now in your Holy Spirit and give us by your Spirit so to hear your word that we might come face to face with your Son, Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. When you read about the life of Jesus in the Bible, you will constantly hear people calling him the Son of David. Like when a blind beggar cries out to Jesus as he passes by, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And this is so constant in the life of Jesus that it's hard to understand him if you don't understand who David is and what David meant to the people in Jesus' time and why people keep calling him this, Son of David. If you're joining us for the first time, we are nearing the end of a short sermon series on King David, uh, of David and Goliath fame, who was a king who ruled Israel about a thousand years before Jesus lived. Now, David's a fascinating character in his own right, but we've been preaching about him because we're all about Jesus here, and we want to understand what David means to Jesus. And this title, Son of David, it referred to a very specific prophecy and expectation that God would raise up a descendant of King David to liberate the Jewish people from the oppressors that had governed them for centuries. And the reason for that expectation and hope in Jesus' time, even a thousand years after David, was the very story that Harpreet just read for us today from 2 Samuel 7. When God tells David, I'll establish your offspring's throne forever. Now this story was a real problem by the time of Jesus because then David's kingdom was long gone. It had been shattered centuries prior by civil war and invasion. Uh, David's, the end of David's kingdom was as far from Jesus as the Middle Ages was, is from us. And how often do you think about the Middle Ages in your day-to-day -day life, right? And now the king of the Jews was a title that ha was handed out to quizzling kings by the emperor in Rome. But God's people still believed that God would make good on his promises. And that's where this idea had come from, that the prophecy of a forever kingdom for David's son hadn't been for David's actual son, Solomon, but about, was about some future descendant of David, some future son of David that God was going to raise up. So when you're reading the Bible, that's what people mean when they say, Jesus, son of David. They're like, maybe you're the king we've been waiting for all this time, the anointed chosen one of God, the Messiah. And the story we heard just now is why they were waiting in the first place for all those years. Now, Christians believe that they were right. They were right to call Jesus the prophesied son of David whose kingdom would last forever. But he wasn't the kind of king they expected and the forever kingdom of David didn't turn out to be the kind of kingdom they were expecting either. And today we're going to walk through this story basically asking three questions. Why did God promise David a forever kingdom? What does it mean for David to be a forever king? And what is your place in the forever kingdom of David, which is really the kingdom of God? So we start at the beginning. King David, the ruler of Israel, has what seems like a good idea. He wants to build a temple to God. Hard to argue with, right? 
The background of this is that the Israelites, the Jewish people, have been carrying around something called the Ark of the Covenant, like Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, that one, yes. They've been carrying it around for 300 years. The ark was a wooden chest. It held the, the stone tablets with the word of God, the law of God uh, on it. And the ark was the place where God's presence lived on earth. That's where people encountered God. That's where today's story starts. David has finally brought the ark to the capital city of Jerusalem. There, uh, the, Israel's enemies are quiet. There is peace and security and has this light bulb moment. I'm living in a nice house, but God stays in a tent, which is where the ark was kept. And the implication is, it's unseemly for me to have four walls and a roof when God's got, you know, some poles and carpet. I'm going to build God a house too, a temple. But that very night, God gives his prophet Nathan a message for King David. God says, I've been wandering with the Israelites for centuries. Have I ever asked for a house? Like, I made the universe. If I wanted a house... Don't you think I could have made that happen? So maybe you're ahead of your skis, David. Maybe you're not the guy to do this. And then God reminds David what's what, where David has come from. God says, I'm the one who brought you out of the sheep pastures to be a prince over my people. Notice that. David's a king. God calls him a prince because God's the king. I'm the one who's given you victory. In other words, it's not like God got lucky and hit the jackpot with David, like, ooh, I finally got a king who will build me a house, like he finally got a contractor for the project, you know? David's not doing God a favor with his plans. That's a thought to chew on, isn't it? God doesn't need our favors. Because everything that David is and has, he owes to God. So God flips the script. You want to build me a house? No, but I'm going to establish your house. Not a physical house with walls, but the house of your lineage. When you're gone, I'm going to raise up your offspring. Your son will be my son. I'll be his father. He'll build the house for my name, and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever, and I will secure my people. What God's doing here is reminding David that David's successes are just part of God's plan. And what God's giving to David isn't for David's sake. It's about God doing God's thing, which is the blessing and redemption and salvation of the entire world. Because here's the thing. King David was never supposed to exist. He's not even plan B. He's plan C. There was never supposed to be a king of the Israelites. God was the king of the Israelites. That's what made them different. They didn't have kings. They had prophets. But one day the people said, we want to have a king like every other nation. And God said to the prophet Samuel, it's okay. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me as king. If they want a king, I'll give them one. But Samuel, you got to go tell them what they're getting themselves into because they need to know what kings do. So Samuel goes to the people and he says, if you want a king, here's how he's going to rule over you. He's going to take everything you've got. He's going to take your sons for his wars and his fields. He's going to take your daughters as his servants and his cooks. He's going to take everything. He's going to take your land, take your crops, take your people, 
your animals. Take the best of what you've got for himself and his flunkies because that's what kings do. Kings take. But the people didn't listen to reason. They just shouted louder, give us a king. And so God gives them King Saul, the king before David, whose monarchy is the direct result of the people rejecting God. That's what that monarchy was. But God can use even our mistakes to save us. And thank God, because if he couldn't, there'd be no hope for us. Even when we reject God, God can use that, because that's what he does with David. God takes a kingdom that was built on rejecting God and says, I can work with this. And not only that, I'm going to take this thing that was never supposed to be, and I'm going to make it last forever. I'm going to take your rejection of me and use that to save you. So David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. But if I'm the one giving this kingdom, it's also mine, isn't it? It's, it's God's kingdom because God never stopped being king. And that means that the forever kingdom of David is the kingdom of God. When Jesus bursts onto the scene, a thousand years later, the kingdom of God is what he's talking about. That's why he says he was sent to tell people the good news about it. No wonder they call him the son of David, the prophesied offspring who's going to rule forever. But the kingdom that Jesus talks about sounds different than other kingdoms. In Mark 4, Jesus says, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what other parable shall we use for it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the ground is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes the greatest of all shrubs and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. The kingdom of God is like a single seed that when it's planted into the ground, grows into a huge tree. And the mustard plant is basically this giant, tenacious weed. And it spreads everywhere, giving shade and rest. Israel was never supposed to have any king but God because human kings take, even King David. But an eternity of taking wasn't God's plan. So God raises up a son of David, a child of David's lineage, who is Jesus. Jesus is son of David, but he's God's son too. Jesus, who's the house of God on earth, and in Jesus, God establishes his throne forever. But when God makes Jesus kings, he flips what kingdom means. Because the king who takes has become the king who gives. The king who takes from those who fear him has become the king who gives to those who love him. Jesus doesn't take our best for himself like other kings. He gives himself for our best. Remember 1 Samuel 8? Samuel warns the king, Israelites that the king will take their sons and daughters. Well, look at what King Jesus does with sons and daughters. He pours out his spirit on them. Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit. The king who takes has become the king who gives. When Jesus talks about a seed being planted, he's talking about his own death on the cross. Jesus is the king who gives himself so that the sins of the whole world, yours, mine, can be forgiven. That's the thing about seeds. In dying, they give life. And that's what Jesus' death did. It gave life to the whole 
world. And when Jesus talks about a single seed growing into a giant tree, he's talking about his people. He's talking about us. Because that mustard tree is the church spreading throughout time and space, and it doesn't stop. With the Holy Spirit running like life-giving sap from root to branch, branch upon branch, and each of us is a branch. Like Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. And the life that he invites us into is a life stretched between earth and sky, straining, reaching for our roots in faith, which is the death that Jesus died for us, and believing in that, and trusting in that, and receiving there in faith what Jesus wants to give to us, which is his Holy Spirit, and then reaching and straining out in faith to one another and to a hurting world, and releasing and opening ourselves to give the very thing, the only thing, that we've received, which is the Holy Spirit, who is in this room right now. And it is precisely the Holy Spirit, nothing less than the Holy Spirit, that takes the salvation that Jesus worked at the cross and gives it to the entire world through the lives of those who love him, seed to branch. The kingdom of God is the Holy Spirit bursting through the lives of the faithful. That is the forever kingdom that God promised to David's offspring, and we are living it. Listen, you can live a fine, meaningful life without ever saying a prayer. You can be an upstanding citizen, love other people, give to charity, be a decent guy without ever thinking about God. Let's not pretend otherwise, right? And if you, you're lucky enough to have money and health, you might be one of the very, very, very few people in human history where the worst thing that will ever happen to you is that you die. But the good life, whatever that means to you, is not the kingdom of God. I want you to understand this. The forever kingdom of God is not people being naturally decent, a click kinder than people are out on the street. The forever kingdom of God is not people whose lives work out just the way they hoped. This room is full of people whose lives haven't worked out just the way that they hoped. The kingdom of God is supernatural power. It is people who do what they do and live like they live and give what they give because they've got one finger stuck in the power outlet of Jesus' cross and they shock everything else that they touch. The forever kingdom of David, the kingdom of God, is the life-giving, death-killing, devil-stomping power of the cross of Jesus Christ, spreading by the power of the Holy Spirit through people who love Jesus enough to live like he said to. What this looks like in practice is honestly the rhythm of life. These five practices are how we follow Jesus here at St. Paul. Seriously, sign up for the class on Wednesday night. Love to see you. Figure out what this looks like for your life. It's why we won't stop talking about it, because we believe that taking our place in the forever kingdom of David is practical stuff. It's how we become branches on that mustard tree. It all starts with the roots. Worship. 
coming weekly to the foot of the cross, walking in these doors and expecting nothing less than to walk into the presence of the living God and to encounter that. And the trunk grows through prayer and study, seeking God's presence every day, not just an hour a week. You cannot know God's kingdom without worship and prayer. And fed by the Holy Spirit, the branches sprout as you give what you've received, your time and your stuff, through service and generosity, and the Holy Spirit takes those and gives them. And the branches bear fruit as you move through the world with the soundtrack of the Spirit on repeat, which is faithful living, acting like Jesus and talking about Jesus. Each of our lives is this endlessly branching tree. Every thought and word and deed another twig. And maybe some of your twigs aren't doing so great this morning. But where the Holy Spirit is at work in our thoughts and our words and our deeds, they burst into leaf and blossom and fruit and our lives become beautiful. They become good for other people. Now at the start of your spiritual journey, if that's where you're at, the main work might be pruning off some big dead branches, the big stuff that you shouldn't be thinking or saying or doing. But as you grow in the Spirit, your gardening's going to get tighter as more and more of your life is covered with the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is God working in and through you to establish his kingdom until finally you're going to be at the, maybe toward the end of your life, like a master trimming a bonsai tree. Just a tiny cut here, tiny snip there. Because the whole thing will be spirit. That's the hope and the promise of a faithful life. So whether you're brand new to faith or years into the journey, that's the invitation right now and for the rest of the service. Turn your mind now to your heart where God lives on earth and talk to God. Go now to the seed, whether for the first or the thousandth time, the seed of the cross where the forever kingdom was bought and planted. And there ask God for the Holy Spirit that Jesus gives to those who love him. God will not say no. And when we sing, and when we pray, take those branches that God's given you and just throw them on up in the air to worship because you are part of the forever kingdom which has come today.